Hallelujah. Does everyone have a copy of God's Word? Today we're going to be in Joel chapter 2. Joel chapter 2. If you need a copy of God's Word, raise your hand. We got a couple of people coming down the aisle. Uh, raise them high so that they can see you and you can get a copy of God's Holy Word. Got one right here. All right. Amen. Amen. Indeed, our God is awesome. And we smile and we say amen. Yes, he is. But if we really consider what that word actually means, then we would actually tremble at the thought. We have lost the bite to this word awesome. We call everything awesome from the clothes that we wear to the car that we drive, even to the food that we eat. But the Bible uses awesome differently. It almost exclusively uses this word to describe the works and the person of our almighty God. In the Old Testament, it's used a lot to communicate terror and fear. In Habakkuk 3.2, the Lord says, I have heard of your fame. The prophet says of the Lord, I have heard of your fame. Stand in awe of your deeds. Lord, repeat them in our day and in our time. Make them known in wrath. Remember mercy. The prophet knew that God was both awesome in his wrath and awesome in his mercy. And he prayed that others would know this truth as well. And obviously, we're excited to talk about the love of God. We're quick to go up and tell people, God loves you. And this is true, but we're also very timid, on the other hand, to tell people about the wrath to come against sin. But how can you really understand the love of God in its fullness if you don't understand the bad news of the wrath of God that's coming? We really need to recover this biblical idea of the fear of the Lord. We must recover this in our own lives personally, but we should also recover that in the way that we disciple one another as a church. This type of fear sees sin first as an affront against a holy God. But then it should also produce in us a deep need to grieve for that sin, but also to please and to honor God. But you might think, well, I'm saved. I don't need to fear God. I just need to have a respect for him, an inward respect for God, although outwardly in our actions may prove otherwise. But the truth is, we really don't recognize how sinful sin is, nor how holy God really is. Either we haven't considered this in our minds and we need reminding, or we haven't really looked at our hearts. It may have grown cold of not understanding the God of the Bible. In Isaiah 66, 2, God's word says about God's word that this is the one whom I look, he who is humble and contrite in spirit and trembles at my word. Now, this is an approach to the scriptures, not just with respect, but with the understanding that God himself has spoken, and our response is to tremble at the, his very word. And this is no small topic. We see the fear of the Lord all throughout the Bible. In the New Testament, Philippians 2.12 says, Work out your salvation with fear and trembling, 
for it is God who works in you. And this is interesting because this is a familiar passage that we can sometimes run by and not pause and really think about what this is saying. We miss that oh snap moment. The same God who created the worlds, the sun, the moon, and the stars, he is literally at work in you this morning. He was at work in you last week. He was at work in you last night. So then, who should fear the, world, the Lord? Psalm 33, 8 says, let all the earth fear the Lord. Let all the inhabitants of the world stand in awe of him. Therefore, no one is exempt from the fear of the Lord. Both the wicked, who will face God on judgment day, and the righteous, who will have to face him in discipline. In Acts 9, 31, in the New Testament, this was the early church growing and spreading throughout the region. It reads that, so the church throughout all Judea and Galilee and Samaria had peace and was being built up and walking in the fear of the Lord and in the comfort of the Holy Spirit. And then it says, it multiplied. This is the New Testament church. You don't see books written about church growth strategy and fearing the Lord, but it's in the book. In Acts 5, 5 and 11, Ananias and Sapphira, they lied to God and both of them died immediately. One of the reasons for this judgment came uh, so swiftly was to teach the new church that God was not to be trifled with concerning sin. And it also served as a warning to that early church. And in that same chapter, verse 5 and 11 state that not just fear, but great fear came upon the whole church and upon all who heard these things. And one of the best illustrations of the fear of the Lord by far is the day of the Lord. And in this chapter of Joel in chapter 2, verse 11 sums this idea up perfectly. And it says, for the day of the Lord is great and very awesome. Who can endure it? So our definition of the fear of the Lord is to stand in holy reverence and awe of God because of who he is. And sometimes we need reminding of this, even God's own people. So Joel, this prophet of God, who we really don't know much about, has to deliver this type of message to remind God's people, a message of destruction and warning and eventual deliverance if they return. And God needed to awaken his people to this coming judgment. Joel's name tells a story in itself. It means God, Jehovah is God. And as if this is what God was sending to his people to remind them of who he is. They had gotten slothful and slack and presumed that God would come to their aid. They didn't see it as God coming for judgment on their sin. The day of the locusts that we see in chapter 1 set in motion the coming day of the Lord to strike a holy fear and to awaken his people. Even in this we see God's tough love, the fatherhood of God. And in all of this, all of us who have been disciplined by a loving parent know that for a moment, all discipline seems painful rather than pleasant, but later it yields a peaceful fruit of righteousness to those who have been trained by it. Hebrews chapter 12, verse 11. So here's the big idea in chapter two of Joel. 
The goal and the aim of the fear of the Lord is to drive his people to repent from sin, to return to God, to rejoice in his attributes of who he is, and then to respond in obedience to his grace. So let's look at chapter 2, verse 1 through 11, and we see this fear of the Lord described. It says, blow a trumpet in Zion, sound an alarm on my holy mountain. Let all the inhabitants of the land tremble, for the day of the Lord is coming. It is near, a day of darkness and gloom, a day of clouds and thick darkness. Like blackness, there is spread upon the mountains a great and powerful people. Their like has never been before nor will be again after them through the years of all generations. Fire devours before them, and behind them a flame burns. The land is like the Garden of Eden before them, but behind them a desolate wilderness, and nothing escapes them. Their appearance is like the appearance of horses, and like war horses they run. As with the rumbling of chariots, they leap on the tops of the mountains, like the crackling of a flame of fire devouring the stubble, like a powerful army drawn for battle. Before them, peoples are in anguish. All faces grow pale. Like warriors, they charge. Like soldiers, they scale the wall. They march each on his way and do not swerve from their paths. They do not jostle one another. Each marches in his path. They burst through the weapons and are not halted. They leap upon the city. They run upon the walls. They climb up into the houses. They enter through the windows like a thief. The earth quakes before them. The heavens tremble. The sun and the moon are darkened and the stars withdraw their shining. The Lord utters his voice before his army, for his camp is exceedingly great. He who executes his word is powerful, for the day of the Lord is great and very awesome. Who can endure it? So the locust invasion, chapter one, that devastated the land and every aspect of society was just a preview for what was to come. This is the trumpet of woe. In verse one, it says, blow the trumpet in Zion and sound the alarm on his holy hill. In wartime, this alarm or the sound of this warning was supposed to indicate that an enemy was on the attack. But we see here that the person who's actually on the move is God himself sending an army to attack his very own people. The question then becomes, why is God preparing to come against his own people? And it's because of three little words to describe our big God. God is holy. And God in his holiness expresses itself in wrath towards sin. There's two things we easily lose sight of, how sinful we are and how holy God is. To think of God's holiness as just another attribute would be to fall short of the actual weightiness of who he is. God's holiness means that he is set apart from mankind, that he is something other than we are, that he's very radical and fundamentally different from human beings. He's perfect without a hint of unrighteousness. Before anything else about God makes sense, we must understand that God is holy. 
Verse 1 continues with a trembling of the people. At the very mention of the nearness of the day of the Lord, the people shake. Verse 2, this imagery of darkness and gloom and thick blackness describes terrifying misery, weakness with clouds that veil heaven itself. A time where God's people will feel like it's a strain to even be seen by the all-seeing God. In this description, in the Hebrew mindset, it would have immediately taken them back to Egypt, down to the exact sequence of when the plagues happened to the Egyptians. The eighth plague of the Egyptians were the swarms of locusts. And then that ninth plague was darkness over the whole land, an eerie darkness that could be felt. But this time, it's not a foreign land. It's not a foreign people. But the alarm is ringing that the God who was coming for his rebellious people was coming to deal with sin. And then it gets progressively worse from this. You see here where it's looming darkness that you can feel, and then it turns into fire that totally scorches the land. In verse 3, it says, though the land is like paradise, Garden of Eden, before them, but behind them is a desolate wilderness and nothing escapes them. See the contrast of beauty to ashes, a garden to wilderness. This is a reversal of the original design. Sin has made a mess of everything. In verse 4 to 9, this military-like force, whether a real military or similar to the locust swarm, they will have the appearance of war horses and chariots, and they will come over mountains and consume everything in an organized attack. People will be terrified and turn pale. This army has great speed and strength. They're disciplined. They do not break ranks even when attacking. They take over cities. They tear down walls. They take over people's houses. And to my military folks, this is the original shock and awe. To, to have a military this disciplined and this ferocious, it really reflects on the leader of this army. So look at the power behind the power in verse 11. The Lord utters his voice before his army, for his camp is exceedingly great. He who executes his word is powerful, for the day of the Lord is great and very awesome. Who can endure it? And the response is no one. They and we desperately need someone to save us from the coming wrath of God. And this is a biblical picture to describe awesome. This is fearsomely awesome. And it's a natural outflow of God's attribute of holiness. Isaiah the prophet, he caught a glimpse of this in the vision of the Lord who was high and lifted up in Isaiah chapter 6. He's high and lifted up, gives a picture of the God being above all power and all rule. He's king of kings and he's lord of lords. And then he says his train of his robe fills the entire temple. And we think about the train of a robe of a king, it's supposed to signify just how great his power, how great his majesty, how great his rule is. And our God's glory fills the entire throne room of heaven. Holy angels cry out, holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. And Isaiah then, in light of God's holiness, sees his sin and he casts judgment on himself. He says, woe is me. I'm ruined. I'm coming apart at the seams. I am a sinful, sinful man. 
So when Brother Mabuso preached last time, he posed a question about Jonathan Edwards and MLK. He said, how can we listen to the message of a man when the man's message does not align with his, a righteous character? And how can this, and how this contradiction then becomes a stain on the church and the misalignment causes anger with God? And I think that's a great question to think about and to meditate on, especially in our apologetic against hypocrisy in the church, either in a block or in the workplace. But an even greater question is, how can this holy God who's high and lifted up, who's righteous and perfect in everything that he does, ever forgive a sinner like you and me? And then still stay true to his character and his nature. It appears that there's a contradiction. What do you do with that? Well, I'm glad you asked because this is what God has done. God is both just and justifier. If you think just saying sorry can cover the ugliness of sin, then you have fallen for the okie doke. You are mistaken. It does not just happen like that. And Joel sends a message just like the message that Jesus sent, that you need to return and you need to repent. And it's at the cross where the wrath of God and the mercy of God is reconciled. See, we all have sinned and we have fallen short of God's holy standard. We've done things that God said not to do. We haven't done things that God said to do. And God is angry at that sin. And there's consequences to that sin. The wages of sin is death that we deserve. But the good news is that the gift of God is eternal life through Christ Jesus. In the fullness of time, God sent his one and unique son. He was born of a virgin. He was fully man and fully God. He lived a life that we couldn't, holy, righteous, obeying all of God's commandments. And then he died in our place. The wrath of God that was reserved for us was poured out on his son. He who knew no sin became sin that we might become the righteousness of God. And then when we turn from that sin, forsake it, and put our trust in Jesus, the Bible says that we can receive forgiveness, mercy, and grace. God is both just and the justifier. He reconciles both his wrath and his mercy upon the cross of Jesus Christ. Jesus rose from the dead, conquering sin, death, and the grave, proving that he is the true son of God. And this is good news. This is good news, that the one who pronounces woe on sinners is the same one who is the pursuer of our souls. God woos his people to repent, but he also woos his people to return. And this process is not a one and done for the Christian. It's a constant call and response. And we see this call and response between God and his people in verse 12 through 17. It says, yet even now, declares the Lord, return to me with all your heart, with fasting, with weeping, and with mourning, and rend your hearts and not your garments. Return to the Lord your God, for he is gracious and merciful, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love. He relents over disaster. Who knows whether he will not turn and relent and leave a blessing behind him, a grain offering and a drink offering for the Lord your God. Blow the trumpet in Zion, consecrate a fast, call a solemn assembly, gather the people, 
consecrate the congregation, assemble the elders, gather the children, even nursing infants, that the bridegroom leave his room and the bride her chamber. Between the vestibule and the altar, let the priests, the ministers of the Lord, weep and say, spare your people, O God, and make not your heritage a reproach, a byword among the nations. Why should they say among the people, where is their God? So we see God calls not just repentance, but to return, and we are to respond with our whole hearts. And verse 12 says, yet even now return. This word paints a picture of going on a journey, but in the wrong direction. It's like the middle school basketball uh, coach who sees his the, the kids steal the ball from the other team, and then he runs down the court, and he sees his parents in the, in the crowd, and he sees the coach on the sideline, and he goes and scores the basket, and then realizes he scored on the wrong side. And then he realizes that the coach was not cheering him on to go, but he was calling him to go in the other direction. So it is one thing for a middle schooler to go in the wrong direction, but it's a whole nother thing when you intentionally go in the wrong direction with purpose and intent to do so. See, then the lines become blurred as to what team you're really playing for. And sometimes we can flirt with sin and with the world that it becomes hard to distinguish whose team we really are on. You see, uh, God is not just warning them that there is danger ahead, but that there is safety in him. He's saying, in a sense, take off the uniform of the other team, repent and return to me. And Paul calls us to examine ourselves. And one of the distinguishing marks of, examine, of um, knowing that the spirit is at work in you is the fact that you will return and that you will repent. The Father is waiting to receive you with open arms. Every prodigal son, every prodigal daughter, the Father is watching and waiting for you to turn from the wrong direction and return to him. Sometimes the process is long. Sometimes the process is hard. It's difficult. But the process is always worth it. Hosea 11, 1, 2 says, when Israel was a child, I loved him. And out of Egypt, I called my son. The more they were called, the more they went away. They kept sacrificing to idols. And in many cases, God's people's hearts are devoted and divided between God and another. So Joel's commission was to remind them that Jehovah is God. In verse 13, we see that their response was to rend their hearts and not their garments. Return to the Lord your God. He is gracious, merciful. He's slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love. And now Israel was known for these outward uh, appearances of repentance. They had a PhD in drama. It was something like you've never seen before. Sackcloth and ashes, right? They had professional whalers. They had it all. Everything was over the top. But God is after a truly repentant heart. And his response is mercy, grace, and patient love. And although God's holiness is expressed in wrath, 
God's love is expressed in tender mercy and amazing grace. God does not just show mercy. He is and has been merciful. He knew the cry of his people and their sufferings in Egypt and sent them Moses, a deliverer. Jesus had compassion and looked at the crowds like sheep without a shepherd. He healed the lame. He gave sight to the blind. He taught to people. He preached the good news and ultimately laid his life down for a needy people. And in that way, he was and is the deliverer. And the psalmist said, as a father has compassion on his children, so the Lord has compassion on those who fear him. God does not just show grace. He is and has been gracious. He deals with his people not on the basis of their merit or their worthiness or what they deserve. He deals with them strictly on the basis of his goodness and his generosity. King David lusted and he stole. He fornicated, lied, and killed. Yet God was gracious and he loved him. The key is he always turned from sin and returned to God and received forgiveness. That's amazing grace, family. King Jesus is the grace of God that Paul talks about in Titus chapter 2.11 that appeared to all mankind. This is the radical kindness of God. And if you look at verse 14, now you see this kindness is not just something to be dismissed, nor is it something to be presumed on. It says, who knows whether he will not return and relent and leave a blessing behind him, a grain offering and a drink offering for the Lord your God. So again, repentance is to continue throughout the whole course of our Christian life. It's what we do. Just for this very reason, that God, who is rich in mercy and grace, would show mercy and grace in our repentance. So think about this. What would it look like for you to have a personal revival by God's grace and victory over a particular sin? What would that look like? Whatever it looks like, it's going to start with repenting from sin turning from God and humbling ourselves before him. But as an encouragement, that's exactly an indicator of the Spirit's work in you when you feel that conviction. So many times people may say, well, I feel like I should be further along than this. I feel like I'm always repenting. I'm always confessing. It's a good thing that shows that you are a child of God, that the Spirit is at work in you. So praise God that there is now no condemnation for those that are in Christ. Never ignore that the, convic- the conviction of the Spirit to go to God in prayer. A broken and contrite heart God will not despise. God calls and his people respond. You see there in verse 15 and 16, hunger and humility is demonstrated in fasting and prayer here. You see the call to the congregation, see the call to the elders and the leaders, the call of all ages from children to infants, a call for urgency with the bridegroom who leaves his room and the bride her chamber. And then there's the prayer, this appealing to God's mercy. Verse 17, it says, between the vestibule and the altar, which is a place of prayer inside the temple, It says, let the priests and the ministers of the Lord weep and say, spare your people, O Lord, and make not 
your heritage a reproach, a byword among the nations. So in other words, have mercy for your namesake. And here he's appealing to two things, God's goodness and his mercy and God's glory in his reputation. So the question for both pastors and people is how's your prayer life? And our primary concern in prayer, or is our primary concern in prayer, the temporary good of the people over and above the glory of God? How are our responses to hard circumstances? Do we cry or do we cry for mercy? Maybe both. And I'll pause before we respond to reactive situations at work or with family or with other brothers and sisters in Christ here within the church. Do we consider how our next move will impact the reputation of Christ? Is our concern his concern? That this thing, this situation, that it might turn out for God's glory and our good. So we see how the fear of the Lord drives us to repent from sin, return to God, and now to rejoice in his attributes of who he is. And now we see God's response. He heard their prayer. In verse 18, it says, And it, the, uh, the Lord became jealous for his land and had pity on his people. So in other words, God says, Yes, I will show mercy. And this mercy is expressed in pity on the people and restoring the land. And we praise the Lord for his mercy. Matthew Henry has this quote where he says, our sins shall never be laid to our charge nor rise up in judgment against us. If we thoroughly forsake them, God will thoroughly forgive them. If we thoroughly forsake them, God will thoroughly forgive them. That's mercy. Now look at God's grace expressed in his generosity. Verse 19. Grain, wine, oil, and the full satisfaction of his people, and the reproach of the nations removed. This is like kill the fatted calf, for my son has returned. This is the joy of the father. Verse 20, it gets rid uh, it gets rid of the very, he, God himself gets rid of the enemy that he sent. You see the language there? He will remove, he will drive out, for God has done great things. This generous grace is also um, said of in Isaiah 30, verse 18. It says, yet the Lord longs, hear the language there? Longs to be gracious to you. He rises to show you compassion. This is a picture of the king of glory rising to show compassion. It's amazing that we can at times take for granted this very grace in these very same areas in which God shows to his people, like answered prayer. Because of Christ, we're assured that our prayers are not only heard, but they're answered. Being satisfied that our identity is in Christ. And in that, we can be content. The removing of the reproach of sin, knowing that we know that we know that the blood has cleansed us from every stain. If I could sing, I would would sing this hymn. That was supposed to be Amos' cue, 
but I don't see them. <laughs> but the hymn writer put it like this. He says that there is a fountain filled with blood as drawn from Emmanuel's veins. And sinners plunge beneath the flood, lose all their guilty stains. It got so good to him, he had to repeat that part about eight times. And there's times when we need to hear that when we come to Christ, we are new creatures. The old has passed, the new has come. There's no longer any condemnation. Who the Son has set free is free indeed, and the reproach is gone. Hallelujah. And here's God's response in verse 21. It says, fear not to the land. Fear not to the beasts, the trees, and the people. But instead rejoice and be glad in who God is and the great things that he has done. Verse 22 to 27 You see that from his hand, God has given good gifts to his children. So when you think of the early rains and the restoration of years from the locusts from desolation and eating plenty from a land once parched and desolate are all supernatural occurrences that can only come from God himself. So that in verse 27, his people would know that Jehovah is God and there is none else. And then we see there, this last section of verse 28 to 32, it reads, And it shall come to pass afterward that I will pour out my spirit on all flesh. Your sons and your daughters shall prophesy. Your old men shall dream dreams and your young men shall see visions. Even on the male and female servants in those days, I will pour out my spirit. And I will show wonders in heavens and on earth blood and fire and columns of smoke. The sun shall be turned to darkness and the moon to blood before the great and awesome day of the Lord comes. And it shall come to pass that everyone who calls on the name of the Lord shall be saved. For in Mount Zion and in Jerusalem, there shall be those who escape as the Lord has said. And among the survivors shall be those whom the Lord calls." So we went from the woe the, the of destruction to the wooing of God, and now we go to the wow of the promise of his presence with his people. And just a side note on prophecy. The prophets themselves could only see mountain peaks and types and shadows, but they and the people had a hard time discerning where everything fits, right? It's like being born in the 90s and then coming into this understanding of the Star Wars episodes, like do you begin in the beginning, the end, the middle? You don't know. And that's the case with the people during this time of Job concerning the day of the Lord and the prophecy of the Lord pouring out his spirit. And to further complicate things, this event is even rolled out in stages of partial fulfillment and then ultimate fulfillment in the future in which we don't know the time or the hour. But God has not left us without a witness. When you think of verse 28 and 29, it's just interpreted for us by the New Testament, by Peter, when he preaches at the day of Pentecost in Acts 2.17. It says, after Jesus ascended into heaven, the apostles, they were waiting for the Holy Spirit. Then suddenly, um, the sound of this mighty rushing wind began, uh, came upon them, and they began to speak in different languages as the Spirit enabled them. 
the people heard in their mother tongue, gathered around Peter, and he told them, we are not drunk, as you suppose, but that what you are seeing is in fulfillment of Joel chapter 2. This was the fulfillment. This was the birth of the church. And when Joel spoke these words, this was a radical statement because there was an ancient Jewish traditional period that kind of gives insight into the social norm of that day. It says a Jewish male would pray like this, I thank God that I am not born a Gentile, a slave, or a woman. So the fact that Joel prophesied, I will pour out my spirit on all flesh, your sons and your daughters shall prophesy, your old men shall see visions, even on the male and female servants, in those days I will pour out my spirit. This was so radical and countercultural. And there's a few things that we can see from this. We can see that God is faithful, and by his grace, we can be what he has called the church to be. First, his faithfulness, it means that he is proven true. God keeps his promises. And all throughout redemptive history, from the promised seed of the woman to the pouring out of his spirit at Pentecost, and though it seemed like a long time to fulfill, the Lord has proved to be faithful to his promises. Second thing we can see is that God's presence with us enables us to do what we are called to do. As a church, we're a body with many parts and with diverse people and diverse gifts. In 1 Corinthians chapter 12, verse 4 to 6, it reads, a variety of gifts, but the same spirit. There are varieties of service, but the same Lord. And there are varieties of activities, but the same God who empowers them all. This unique countercultural love on display proves to the watching world that we are Christ's disciples. So we can take the message of this gospel, this good news, this ministry that God has empowered his people to do from the four corners of the block to the four corners of the goal with full assurance that because God is faithful, the mission will be successful and that all who call upon the name of the Lord will be saved. And lastly, this is all done in the backdrop of the future day of the Lord. And our statement of faith, it states it best. It says that the coming day of the Lord is to deter all men from sin on one hand and give greater comfort to the godly in their troubles on the other hand. Christ desires that we be firmly convinced that the judgment day is coming. And for these same reasons, he has not revealed the date so that men may shake off all confidence in themselves and may be ever watching and prepared to say, come, Lord Jesus, come quickly. Amen. So as believers, we're not to be scared of God. We have his promises that nothing can separate us from the love of God, that he will never leave us nor forsake us. But we are supposed to have a healthy fear of the Lord, especially in light of the day of the Lord which means having such a reverence for him that it has a great impact on the way that we live our lives. Though we are securing Christ, his discipline is never something to be trifled with. So what about you? 
Does the fear of the Lord drive you to repent from sin? To return to God? Does it cause you to rejoice in his attributes of who he is? In both justice and mercy? Does it cause you to respond in obedience to his grace that he has poured out to his church? I pray that it does. Let us pray together. Father, we thank you, Lord. We thank you for your word. We thank you that it's living and it's active and it's sharper than any double-edged sword. Divides between bone and marrow, soul and spirit. And it discerns the thoughts and the intent of our hearts. God, we pray that this message from Joel to your people uh, would resonate even now, Lord, to your church. We thank you that all of your attributes are seen wonderfully in Christ Jesus. And we know that a day is coming, Lord, where you will return. And we pray that we would run towards your grace, return and repent from sin, and rejoice in who you are, the Savior of the world, the Holy God, who shows mercy and grace without contradiction. And we pray all these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Amen.